Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. Now, usually at this point in the podcast, I would describe the view from the start of our walk and I would turn alongside me to say hello to illustrator, author and our guide for the day's walk, Mark Richards. But we live in different times, don't we, Mark? You are some many miles distance from me today, uh, self-isolating in Geltsdale. Absolutely. I, this is quite bizarre. Extraordinary times require new techniques. I'm in a little bit of a tent cocoon, <laughs> but the spirit of adventure is no less uh, running through my veins. <laughs> That's right. We thought long and hard about whether Country Stride should cease for, for a little while, but there's plenty of people who enjoy tuning in and sharing our love of this special part of the United Kingdom. So we've We've embraced technology, haven't we, Mark? Not necessarily always easy, but we've both got an application which allows us to remotely connect not only with each other, but our guest as well. Indeed. It's called Zoom, so we're resuming, let's say. (laughs) But we intend to uh, pursue our passion for the months to come. And I understand, Mark, up in distant Geltsdale there, where you are isolated at the best of times, but um, you've been... Busy bettering your Scrabble scores. Crikey, yes. My wife and I amalgamate our scores. We're not that competitive. Um, so our best so far is 609. But the next game we play, we were in the mid-400s. So it did show that um, you can't be that cute, even with a game like that. But uh, we are continuing uh, positively uh, with our confinement and doing exciting things, reading. I've got lost to write. I'm on the doorstep of walks that I can naturally do without imposing on anybody. Up through Birchwood, up onto Heathermore, so I'm very lucky. So you're able to get out there anyway, which is fab, isn't it? And uh, I thought something that might be quite fun, um, we could put it up on social, is to ask our listeners the first walk that they're looking forward to doing in the lakes when lockdown finally ends. I wonder what yours is, Mark. Do you have a special walk that you dream of? I'd like to get back into the Far Eastern Fells again. Would you? Right. Lonely country, but there's some lovely wild places that um, I haven't been to for a very long time. And you get a, bit, a tremendous sense of nostalgia about places that are somewhat more remote. So getting into Swindale and getting up uh, above there would be rather interesting. The How Gills. Yeah, oh, the How Gills. Absolutely wonderful. I, n- I never fail to love the How Gills. They just roll on and on, and they're just wonderful. Yeah, yeah, okay. Oh, well, there we go. But uh, if you've got any walks that are pulling you back to Cumbria for when the time comes for us to get out and about again, then do drop us a line, either on social or email. We'd love to, to hear the walks that you're planning when, uh, when we can walk again. Now, today, Mark, Talk us through our guest for today and what we're going to be talking about. Interesting guest, this one. Uh, Somebody who lives in Exeter in Devon, who has studied inspirational women walkers. uh, And the span of 200 years from Dorothy Wordsworth right through to the present day. Catherine has a new book coming out in June where she talks about, as you say, these women walking pioneers and of course for a lot of these women mark walking was not only a daring thing to do in many cases but in some cases quite revolutionary Uh, these were times when women were dissuaded from heading out alone 
Yes, indeed. It was socially unacceptable for a woman to walk on their own. Uh, and yet, somebody like Dorothy Wordsworth was very influenced by the humbler people around her. Mm. The way shepherds would go out and gather their flocks. She sensed that same sense of intrigue in the wild places that surrounded her. And she had a wonderful way with words. So although we talk eloquently about William Wordsworth, actually the driving force that gave him the liberty to be who he was, was his sister. We had lined up a walk with Catherine along the shores of Oldswater, which is very pertinent to this time of year because it's there, isn't it? Glencoyne Park, where the most famous daffodils uh, in the world uh, still grow every spring and the daffodils are looking fabulous up here in Cumbria at the moment. They are indeed and very uh, indigenous to that uh, Oldswater scene. And we were looking forward to taking Catherine Alto along a stretch of the Oldswater Way. So we'll meet Catherine via our little social app in a few moments' time. And we should say that we're going to try and capture the usual spirit of Country Stride by interspersing our conversation about Cumbria and about the places we love here with some field noise and I've been going out Mark on my daily walk and capturing a little bit of audio of birdsong and the streams and the lambs that are now in all of the fields so we'll get a little bit of a feel for that um, interspersed with your conversation with Catherine so let's go and meet Catherine Well, today I'm on a virtual encounter with a very special guest, Catherine Alto, who is quite a few hundred miles distant from me now in North Cumbria. She is way down in Devon. Catherine, could you tell me a little bit about your roots into the environment? Yeah, well, thanks, Mark. It's lovely to be with you. Uh, right. So I grew up in the middle of California, sort of 90 miles east of San Francisco and 90 miles west of Yosemite National Park in a place called the Central Valley. Um, and it's uh, the breadbasket of the world. Uh, and where I was from, we called it the land of peaches and cream. So there were peach orchards and dairies. And I grew up uh, as the daughter of an agricultural high school teacher. Uh, so he was an ag teacher and a garden designer. So I grew up gardening and um, raising sheep and beef cattle. And as I grew up, I became interested in knowing what came before the almond trees uh, where I grew up? What came before the cornfields? And uh, when I went to Berkeley, I ended up reading a, an essay by John Muir uh, about his walk from San Francisco to Yosemite through where I grew up. And from that moment on, I became very interested in knowing how plants move around, um, natural history, um, and also experiencing a place on foot. One thing led to another, and uh, I ended up in Washington State on a farm with my uh, partner, and we lived on this lovely 20-acre farm that had a wild salmon spawning stream 
And we had dug firs and maples and enormous trees, access to wildlife. But it was only on our 20 acres. And it felt like being, you know, those little jewelry boxes where you open them and a ballerina comes up and swirls around. I began to feel like that on our farm. Like, where was the source of this river? And could I walk there? Well, I can't because we don't have access. We can't cross private property like we can here in England. So I began to feel that even though the West is such an open space, it also feels like a romantic idea in a way um, that it looks open, but can we really access it like we can here in England? And so that's my background and where my love of walking and, and nature writing came from. In the very first line of your book, when you were very young, you described the fact that you ran away from home a lot, which I sense there was a, there was a little wild girl in there. Yes, I think this interest in having adventures on foot really did start probably before I read about John Muir. The opening line is, when I was a child, I ran away from home a lot. Over my shoulder, I slung a knapsack fashioned from a red handkerchief pulled from my costume trunk of gowns, hats, and heels. Before spearing it with an almond tree branch, I filled that pack with provisions, my toothbrush, a box of raisins, my small silk blanket, and bread pilfered from the kitchen when my mother wasn't looking. This is goodbye, I would whisper to my parents. Okay, honey, they'd say, watching five-year-old me flounce out the back door. 1940s earrings clipped to my ears, mangy full fur stole around my neck, and into the cornfields and peach orchards of our home on Lemon Avenue. So that was a fun way to start off the book because I grew up reading uh, The Wind in the Willows. Um, I loved the adventures of Rare Rabbit as well. I suppose I was just trying to walk in the footsteps of mole or rat or toad. And then it just seemed so far away on our farm. But really, it was probably 10 minutes I could manage being a five-year-old. So this idea of the unexpected and, and having adventures has never left me. I can understand that. I had that same emotion when I was young. The hedges, the woods, the open pastures, they were so full of bird life and beetles and moles. And I was brought up with A.A. Milne, just as you were, uh, and Br'er Rabbit. They resonated with my, my actual experience. It's obvious it's never left us, uh, you, you and I, Mark. And yeah. um, it's a funny thing. Uh, not long ago, I was giving a talk in Bedford, Massachusetts. And I remember being at the top of a white, steepled church and looking down onto the common below. And I saw this man walking up, you know, people were jogging and the light was dimming. It was dusk. And my talk started in about a 45 minutes. So I was just getting the lay of the, the, the meeting room and the church and so forth. And I saw this man walking up. He looked like Thomas Wolfe. He was wearing a complete white suit and a black tie. And I thought, oh gosh, please do not come to my talk. I know I'm going to be in trouble here. Sure enough, he ended up in the meeting room and I sort of peeked and I saw him sitting 45 or 30 minutes before the talk began. And he was just sitting quietly waiting. People filled in and the room and the room became filled with uh, people waiting to hear me talk. And then there was a Q&A at the end of the talk. And he was the last person. He raised his hand and he said in a Carl Sagan kind of voice, when you walk in England, how does it make you feel? And I walk all the time and I had not, I mean, I think about how it makes me feel, but I stood back from the podium and just started sweating. I had no answer to that question. It's such a complicated, rich, wonderful experience. 
that it's taken me about a year and a half to figure out why I do it. To me, we are meant to walk. It taps into the human experience. And I think when you don't do it and you don't have access to nature, like a lot of people are experiencing right now under social isolation, that it can lead to depression. We are away from our natural state right now. And so to me, a 10 to 15 mile ramble, circular ramble, makes me feel alive. That was my answer to his question eventually. It makes me feel the most alive. I want to hear birdsong. I want to know the changing of the season. I want to have memories and emotion in different places. And I want to know the lay of the land. And it makes me happy. It makes me feel contented. And um, especially as an expat getting to know a new country, it's really important. And I have it here far more than I do in the United States because I can do it on the regular here. I've, I've done all sorts of long distance walking and I'm, I'm working on different paths right now. But right now, even in this social isolation, I can still get in my time and I feel okay. I feel content. Humans are gregarious, but that gregarity relates to the natural world every bit as much as our relationship with one another. I'm very much interested in where we lost our way. And so my book, Riding Wild, goes back 200 years to what happened in the Lake District, where we were supposed to be walking today. What happened there that was so significant? And what were the Lake poets saying? And what did Dorothy Wordsworth say that didn't get published, that other people were saying for her or using her thoughts? Um, And what's happened up until the present? What is happening? And so Riding Wild is an exploration, sort of it's travel writing. I'm in landscapes and visiting places. I'm trying to understand how other people have experienced the landscape on foot and written about it. This is really interesting when you put this all in context with with what I might describe as the star of the show today, which is Dorothy Wordsworth. Who was this wonderful lady? Well, Dorothy Wordsworth um, has lived in the shadow of her more famous brother, William Wordsworth, um, who wrote one of the most famous poems in the English language, Daffodils. But Dorothy had a role in that, and she was also quite an outlier for her time. So she was born in 1771 in Cockermouth, a market town on the western edge of the Lake District. And she was the middle child and the only girl of five Wordsworth children. She um, was slender and tall and radiated a kind of wildness sort of naturally. And her parents died when she was six. And so suddenly she didn't have a mother or a father around, and she was sent immediately to Yorkshire to live with an aunt. And um, she didn't see her brothers again for 10 years. Um, So she had as lovely a childhood as you can have with um, a passel of girls, but she deeply missed, can you imagine the kind of trauma that she must have endured? But she ended up living with William Wordsworth and his wife and their growing family in uh, Grasmere at Dove Cottage. And she and he shared a really interesting poetic connection that sort of embodies that romantic movement at the time. And so the romantics were kind of like the generation Sex Pistols and Dead Kennedys. They were (laughs) punk poets of, of their era. They were rebelling against 
the epic poetry, classical sort of poetry that came out of uh, prior to the Romantic movement. And the Romantics really cherished surprise and beauty and the sublime. And they got that initially, the very first poets. We have Robert Southey, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, William Wordsworth, who walked and wrote in the hills and the vales where you live now. And they were scared. They could see the Industrial Revolution and the Scientific Revolution moving people away from kind of natural roots, and they were rebelling against that. And so she was a shadow in this part of what's known as English Romanticism, which is the celebration of the individual and nature and the past that extended from about the late 1700s to the early 1800s. I say in the book, uh, a romantic preferred to wake up to a cockerel than to a clock. That kind of embodies this idea of living uh, with nature and not mechanistically, you know, mechanically. So she was a fantastic walker, accompanied him to Germany and many, many, many walks um, throughout the, the Lake District to the chagrin of relatives who said, you should not, Dorothy, be taking walks at midnight alone, and you should not be doing this. And I remember reading something where she wrote at age 46, she walked more, almost 4.6 miles in an hour. I mean, she was fit. And a lot of these nature writers who walk a lot live really long lives. So I begin my book by taking people into something remarkable that Dorothy did, which was a walk up Scoffell Pike uh, in 1818. And she did it with some girlfriends and uh, a mountain guide, so to speak. A, a local shepherd. That's I think exactly it right. Yes. Would you like me to take a listen? Yes. So I begin. Our journey begins in Wasdale, one of the most remote valleys in England's Lake District. In the pink pre-dawn light of midsummer, I set out on a narrow lane lined in dry stone walls, overflowing in fragrant wild honeysuckle and mustard lichen. I passed St. Olaf's, possibly England's smallest church, a stone structure set amid a grove of yews in ancient Viking fields. I lift the latch at a path marked Scoffell Pike, step through the gate, and hear the metallic clink break the morning silence. I cross a pasture toward a wooden bridge and onto a narrow ascending gravel trail. The way is up, but Scoffell Pike, the peak I'm aiming for and England's tallest, is hidden for the moment by Goat Crag. I walk through Bracken Close, then rise along the rocky cascades of Lingmel Gill and higher through alpine meadows of purple sassafrage and carpets of moss along Brown Tongue. Above me is Black Crag, a peak shorter than my destination, and I stop to appreciate the pleasures of total silence. When I begin hiking again, I can hear my breath and my feet crunching in the gravel. Somewhere in the clear air above me, a ring oozle calls, pauses, then sings a warbled song that sounds like marbles in hand. An hour passes, 1,500 feet climbed. Higher up at Lingmel Cull, the saddle between Broad Crag and Scoffell Pike, Herdwick sheep rest in boulder shadows, where they leave tufts of black and white wool in parsley fern. Above me, a sharp ping, ping, ping of a buzzard against the fingernail moon. The sun is rising, and soon it will be hot. My legs are strong, and I travel light. I don't mean to overtake two sets of highly kitted men, but I do, and I wink at them. (laughs) I reach a large debris field of scree and shattered rock and look for cairns to lead me to the final steep climb. I leap across rocks and boulders. There are some final steps onto a platform, and I'm finally standing at the 3,209-foot summit. For a little while, before less early risers make their way up, I am alone on one of the world's most rapturous stages. I take a deep breath. 
surrounded by a study in blues, dark blue lakes, indigo mountain shadows, robin egg sky. It's seven in the morning and the sun is spreading golden light into these blue hues. I see Helvellyn and Skiddaw and I can just make out the Mourne Mountains across the Irish Sea and Snowdonia and Wales to the south. Somewhere in the hills below me is Grasmere, the home of England's most famous poet. That's remarkable. Actually, few people take the time to observe in that kind of detail. And that was what Dorothy did. She was uh, quite moved by the sight of the sea could make her cry. And coming out of a, a funeral and seeing flowers would make her burst into tears. That is that kind of romantic emotional state that um, fueled uh, Wordsworth's poetry. I mean, he he looked at his sister as having a temperament that in some ways he had lost. She was younger than he was, so he kind of lost it and he looked to her as kind of a an inspiration in a way. Dorothy herself was very much tuned in to the texture of the environment around her. And so that when she walked along the shores of Oldswater through Glencoyne Park, she observed these daffodils and she wrote about them it was a gray day on April 15th, 1802, and it was a windy day then. And she and her brother were out on an, a walk around Oldswater after dinner. And um, <laughs> they left the woods um, and they saw a few daffodils close to the water. She wondered aloud, like, were, were there seeds that had floated up? I don't think she understood the bulb aspect of it. How did they, how did they grow there? She writes in the Grasmere Journal, which was open for the other poets to look at. So Coleridge looked at it, um, William looked at it, and nicked a bit from it, I have to say. Um, but she originally wrote, I never saw daffodils so beautiful. They grew among the mossy stones about and about them. Some rested their heads upon these stones as on a pillow for weariness. And the rest tossed and reeled and danced and seemed as if they verily laughed with the wind that blew them over the lake. They looked so gay, ever glancing, ever changing. So she had these really um, keen observational skills for texture, for color, and for how it made her feel. And then writing them down in a journal so that they were immortalized. And then the journal was kind of just left open in the house. And when William Wordsworth wrote arguably the most famous poem in the English language, Daffodils, he nicked a little bit. And so part of my book is giving women credit where credit is due. Some women were bullied. Some women were um, bossed. Some women's writing was plagiarized. Um, whether or not Dorothy felt it was plagiarized, she never wanted to be a writer. She probably never cared. But we can care for her um, and say that she was one of the early voices, one of the earliest women walking out like as she was. What's really unusual, I think, amongst all this is that Dorothy walked alone. Men and women take for granted when, when women can walk alone now. Um, so back then, if we go back in time, in general, we could really only walk with the chaperone of men or other people. Otherwise, we would feel threatened, we would be subject to verbal abuse, and we would experience what's been called sort of reputational anxiety about walking. Like, what is wrong with that person? You just use your imagination. Why is this woman walking alone? And Dorothy herself received a steady stream of letters from a disapproving aunt and grandmother you know, reprimanding her for, for, for doing that very thing. So not only did she walk alone, walk a lot with 
with her brother and other lake poets, but then she wrote things down. So it was remarkable for her to do that. And the Grasmere Journal is wonderful um, because there are people and places and scenes that are captured from, you know, knitting scenes to planting flowers to observing life going on around. So if people want to journey back in time, 200 years to impressions of life in the Lake District, pick up Dorothy Wordsworth's um, The Grasmere Journal. And you can often get The Grasmere Journal and her um, Alfoxton Journal um, together and read them both. Famously, Dorothy didn't get married. Uh, she lived with her brother and his family. Uh, and it was a not a typical it was not uncommon back then for families live together. Many of the women in my book, I only really discovered later um, or during research, never married and never had families. To try to pick that apart is difficult. It's very fraught for me to do that. Um, but I do think that when there are not children underfoot, that uh, or you don't have, Dorothy didn't have children to take care of, like her own children. She took care of her nieces and nephews, and um, she she loved being in that role. But it does free a woman. And I think that you can be connected to the non-human world and feel fulfilled. You can also feel quite maternal and caring in ways that are not expressed as a biological mother. And this might be something later to talk about, but I argue at the end of Writing Wild that we need to get back to men and women, biological parents or not, need to get back to that sense of caring for Earth maternally. And I think scientists are going back to this Gaia hypothesis now to the point when we used to be more connected. And other writers I write about, um, you know, talk about getting to this age of sustainability. So you can be maternal, men and women can be maternal and, and care and feel connected in a way that doesn't mean you necessarily to be a parent to do it. I'm really intrigued, Catherine, because I feel you're very in tune with your stars, as it were, of your show, There Were 25 Women. What was the impetus that drove you to actually bring it all together? What is it about the drive in these people that really inspired you in their love of nature and the natural environment? Well... I had been reading nature writing for a long time, since I was 20, so that's decades ago. Um, I taught American literature of nature in place, I studied it. Almost all of the writers were dead white guys. Now, I'm not knocking dead white guys um, in my book. Uh, one of my favorite writers is Thoreau. I can no easier dislodge him from my mindset than I can, as I write in the book, you know, Andy Gibbon, the Bee Gees, from my early preteen years. I mean, he is a part of it. So my book is not dissing what's come before, that people have done well. What it is doing is saying, I've had my ear to the ground, listening for the footfalls of other voices that have not been given credit um, or needed to be unearthed. So the writing wild was started, the idea came about because I was reading a piece in Outside Magazine, which is a big outdoor, glossy, adventure, walking, hiking, mountaineering magazine in the United States. And an article came out called uh, Essential Books for the Well-Read Explorer. 
And I noticed with some interest that 22 of the 25 writers were <laughs> white men. And I just said, wait a minute. Um, now, I was asked to write a response to the article um, by the editors of Outside. And my response got a lot of attention on social media. Robert McFarlane liked my response as well. Um, and he's a one of the Britain's greatest nature writers, for, for those who don't know. Um, and it just started buzzing. And so my response was turned into this book. My publisher came forward and asked me to write uh, a book about it. So I did that. I'm just giving credit uh, to women who did, did not get credit, people who wrote anonymously, because some of us couldn't put our name on what we wrote. It was by anonymous or by a lady. Very often authors would um, just use their initials. <laughs> yes, and those were always women, were they not? What I find most magical about your relationship with all these writers is your own love of walking, this liberty that you get, this relationship you have with the natural world is really brought to bear in walking. People always say that creativity comes from going for a good walk. I know various poets and so forth who always go out first thing in the morning and have a walk and they come back, their mind is liberated. Do you find walking liberates you? Yes, uh, I, I think about that a lot. And a lot of my conversations with people and writers is about how we break up our day and how do we access that creative energy. And it's funny because yesterday I did about a nine and a half mile run and I just thought, well, I'm not thinking on the run. I am working on the run. So there's a difference between long runs, which are difficult because you're not accessing that point in your brain, and a walk. So every day I'm, I do something. I live up on a ridge north of Exeter, and I have access to a, about a mile and a half walk down the hill, through the woods, through trees, through a hallway, through primroses, and right now a line of daffodils near a stream. <laughs> So I get that 23 minutes or so is one of the most important periods of my working day. And sometimes I have to remind myself to take it because I, I get so deep into an idea that I don't want to break away. And the most important thing I need to do is to break away. Um, and so it's tapping into that other part of our brain that allows us to run away far from our ideas or whatever we're thinking about, even if we're not writers, it could be a problem. It could be uh, just we're having a normal, you know, day. It could be some joy. Um, whatever it is, what walking does is it moves us away from whatever we're feeling at the moment. And within minutes, you begin thinking differently. Um, these lives that we lead in the 21st century in fluorescent lit offices, wearing heels, and you know, the commute. I think this quarantine that we're in right now is allowing people a moment to reset, which is really interesting, and go outside for their walks that we're supposed to be doing. <laughs> That's how I integrate walks almost daily. Um, and if I don't, I have a bad day. I need to go for a walk. <laughs> um, but long distance walking is a completely different beast. So I've done a few here in England. One of the best things we ever did as a family, uh, we have three children ages now 22, 20, and 16. But in 2012, during the Olympics, I might say, <laughs> we walked the coast to coast from St. Bees in the Lake District across England to Robin Hood's Bay. And so we did it in about 13 days. And um, and what it does, I, I, I can't describe it almost. It detaches you from modern life. Um, when you know you have to walk, you know, say 26 miles in a day, you tap into reserves you didn't know you had. But 
if done solid, you know, as a solo person, it's wonderful, but we did it as a family and we just sort of said to the kids, go, go wander. And if you, you know, keep walking and if you get to a fork in the trail and you don't know which way to go, then you stop. So the kids were able to feel freedom. In the U.S., we have private property signs everywhere, no trespassing. And so to experience the invitation of a farmer to say, please close the gate behind you, or the pub is this way, or tea and scones this way, is a, a delight. Uh, it's absolutely wonderful. And we walked in the first two weeks of August. And so, you know, it was rainy a bit in the Lake District. We had to pull out our emergency kit in the rainiest spot in the Lake District. We were under it, um, waiting for the storms to pass. And then, you know, over over time, we had hot days and my kids collected wildflower bouquets and listened to toads and frogs. And you just experience sense of place. And sense of place is that the way I define it is it's that invisible layer of history and memories and emotion that is set over the physical landscape like an invisible strata. And we feel most at home in a place when we there's a sense of place. You feel like you're, you're living outside modern life. I also never take a trail guide with me, which I don't recommend, um, but I just follow the acorns. I feel like you know, in Hansel and Gretel, you know, they left breadcrumbs. And I feel like I'm sort of going back to those early days of my parents reading those books to me. And I just follow the little acorns and trying to find them sometimes can be tricky, but I've never gotten lost. Um, I'm also uh, halfway through the Southwest Coast path. I'm in the corrugated part of um, Cornwall right now. So I'm not doing long distance walking right there. I sort of do a day or a couple days at a time, but it's so hard right now. It's sort of up and down 15 miles. <laughs> it's difficult. Walking the coast path, you're constantly going across a valley, up and down, up and down. It's got more gradient than any mountain. Notorious, isn't it? It is notorious. I mean, the views are magnificent. The the, the sea is always there, but it's hard. Um, so what I did was I started the uh, the Thames River path. So I started at the source of the Thames in the Cotswolds, which is a pile of rubble. And then slowly you see a little river, a little little stream, and then it's completely flat. It's an absolute joy. I can go and do a day or two at a time and come back. Sort of, I sneak away and I feel unencumbered, and I feel I'm just walking with just my thoughts. And enjoying, you know, the river, the glint of light off the stream. I'm watching a river grow, too, from something very small to something big. So I can't get enough. I cannot get enough. I'm really intrigued by this whole thing about nature writing itself. Uh, we tend to think of it, when we put it in the context of Dorothy Wordsworth, as being lyrical, beautiful, romantic, eloquent writing. But this eloquence actually now has got a, a far more, I don't know if it's political purpose, but we're trying to get back to a, an understanding of our relationship as humans to our environment so the impetus for nature writers is to ask and explore the question, how best can I live in the world? Um, and we are part of the natural world. So how do we're not separate from it? So I bookend writing wild with Dorothy Wordsworth and I end it on the other side of the industrial revolution, 200 years later with um, a brilliant writer named Elizabeth Rush, who wrote the 2018 book, 
Rising Dispatches from the New American Shore, which was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize in nonfiction. We look at how, uh, you know, these writers in the Lake District, these punk poets, the romantics, were adjusting to and exploring and writing about their relationship with the natural world. And we get a glimpse before this Industrial Revolution. And now we have writers who are contemplating the devastating effects of it. We have writers writing about uh, rising sea levels and erratic climate systems and coral reefs that are dying and the 60% drop in biodiversity. And when this book, Rising, arrived was the week one of my brothers lost his home in the car wildfire in California. Nature writing takes many forms. It's not always the lyrical personal essay. The personal essay is a great vehicle um, because it's an inviting way of bringing someone along on your journey, and it's classic as well. So um, Henry David Thoreau wrote in the in the essay form. Dorothy Wordsworth didn't so much. Uh, she wrote impressions, as did Susan Fenimore Cooper, and all the way up to the present, we have. Elizabeth Rush and other writers that I put the spotlight on, they're using that form of the personal essay, The Walk, in a, in a particular landscape, to note their observation, to take oral histories of people who are living in those landscapes and experiencing the changes in the natural world, um, to interviews with scientists. And I model all of that in Writing Wild. So I'm taking walks, I'm interviewing the writers, I'm giving readers my first impressions of being in these places. Um, I'm nature writing about nature writing. I'm walking in the footsteps of these people. And it's more important than ever um, to understand what's happening in the natural world by reading men and women. In fact, Elizabeth Rush is now, as we record this, seven months pregnant. And she talked to me about, um, she wanted to become a mother. And how do you, as a person living in this age, how do you bring a child into this Anthropocene? And so I end the book talking about the idea that we previously discussed about how we can all be maternal. How do we break out of these systems that are hurting the natural world, hurting the earth? And perhaps this moment that we're pausing in right now during quarantines when pollution levels are lowering, um, when we have a moment of reflection uh, to think all of these are, are times to get in touch with the natural world and to deeply contemplate what we need to change. Green energy, um, walking more, flying, what do we need to do? Because we're getting glimpses into what used to be. We're living in the present and we have the, another window. The third window we're looking into is the opportunity to see the future. And nature writers do all of those things. They remind us of our past, they tell us where we are now, and they open windows into where we could go. Uh, Amy Liptrop, a previous winner of the Wainwright Prize for writing, she said um, that nature was able to rebuild herself from her time adrift in London, uh, and a lovely metaphor about rebuilding a dry stone wall. I'm, I'm repairing these dikes at the same time as I'm putting myself back together an amazing healing power of nature. Can you put that into some context? This book is about um, recovering from addiction. So it's an addiction memoir. She won the Wainwright Prize, as you mentioned, in 2016. Um, and it documents her time returning back to the Orkney Islands to repair her inner landscape. She needed to rehabilitate herself, and the best way to do it was to leave London and to return to where she grew up. 
She became a bird watcher. She began building stone walls. I write stone by stone, day by day, season by season. Liptrot harnesses the therapeutic powers of the islands to do something extraordinary, construct a new landscape. Physically removed from her previous life, the fresh air and open sky of the Orkneys are palliatives and clarifiers that give her the space and simplicity to create a healthy mental map. So she's using the natural world to create new coordinates in her mind. Um, People who are suffering depression as well um, can benefit from being in the natural world that's that's well documented so yeah we have there are lots of writers in here who not just in in my book but um men as well who who write about the natural world in this way i mean mary oliver does it as well she writes about um mary oliver is america's best-selling poet and she died uh, in 2019 she was sexually abused by her father as a child and where did she go to find refuge, she went to the wild and she brought her books on Walt Whitman and a knapsack full of books. And she learned to rebuild her own sense of self. And she recovered, not in the sanctuary of her home, but in the sanctuary of the wild. And um, the reason why she is such a best-selling poet is because she offers windows for people to explore hurt and grief and offers a way of living in the world and healing whatever it is who did i first turn to when i realized i was going to be socially isolated i I turned to mary oliver the very first poems Um, and i actually have been reading them to our kids at breakfast and dinner and i say what does this mean so we talk about poetry and i think nature writing is essential right now as we're in lockdown and isolation because it tells us these things will pass but it gives us solace and it helps us to heal, and it will help us get through this time period. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful, Catherine. You, you've taken this to time and space in a, a, a most remarkable way. But we always have this habit with our guests to invite them to respond to a sequence of quickfire questions. My first one would be, have you a first Lakeland memory? Was picking up a stone in the Lake District on the shores of the Irish Sea and putting it in my pocket. We all did. And walking across England and tossing them into the North Sea. So we did what, I, I don't know if Alfred Rainwright suggested that, but that's my very first impression. Wainwright or Wordsworth? Wordsworth. There you go. Uh, have you a, a Cumbrian hero or heroine, dead or alive? And I think I know what the answer is here. Um, yes, I do. But I bet it's not the answer that you think I'm going to give. You, you're Good. probably thinking it's the Wordsworth, but it's actually James Rebanks. Um, because what he's doing is he is one of the best nature writers alive right now. He is a master at the very simple sentence, beautiful sentences. But what he's also doing is he's not, you know, the wanderer uh, up on a romantic cliff looking out. He is not an observer who goes back to his urban home. He is part of the landscape. His family has lived on his fell farm for more than 600 years. He's not only a writer, but he is a farmer and he knows the area really well. And he's also trying to rewild it. He is rewiggling streams. He planted, I think, 20,000 trees this winter. 
James Rebanks is my hero, and I'm so proud to call him my friend and colleague with the Rural Writing Institute. Yeah, quite. A tent or a hotel? Tent. There you go. Have you a favourite uh, hostelry, a pub that you've frequented in Cumbria? Well, the Wasdale Inn. I've spent a bit of time at the Wasdale Inn in the shadow of um, Scoffell Pike, writing the Brilliant. first parts of my book. Yeah. So I've had plenty of ale there. And they've got a great little um, library for mountaineering literature there. So I, I really like that. Uh, if you had were to take uh, a book about Lake District to a desert island, which one would it be? The Shepherd's Life. Uh, what would you be your perfect lake's day? Oh, my goodness. That's such a good question. Well, it would be to bag a peak, um, as you as you say. Uh, so to get up really early in the morning, say summer solstice sometime in June, a longest day. Um, get up at 4 a.m., have a light breakfast, pack a bag the night before, hot flask of tea. I could be happy doing Scoffell Pike, but I probably want to do something else a little farther north, I think. So climb a mountain, uh, swim a little bit in a uh, in not Nan Shepherd-like uh, sleep, nap, nap in some heather, take a, an afternoon nap in some heather, a picnic with my family. I would not want to be alone. I would want to be with my family and friends. A couple of pints of ale, local ale uh, on the way back and a hearty meal, and then a poetry reading or uh, in the evening. That's it. It's a very, very, very rounded day, I would describe that. Yeah. Uh, when, when the time comes and a few friends gather to remember you in a place that means something special to you, if it was in the Lake District, where would that be? I think it would probably be where the coast-to-coast begins. So you can look out over the Irish Sea, and you've got a journey ahead of you to do. Well, that's a fabulous uh, summation of your view of the world. And, oh, it's been a wonderful journey to be on with you today. Um, I hope uh, when things improve, we can share a proper fell walk. I've really enjoyed reading Writing Wild. I hope people in this country pick up on Timber Press's publication. It's, when is the book due? Uh, June 24th. It's a summer book. Great to know you, Catherine, and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you, Mark. Journeys and then Mark, uh, having walked no footsteps at all this time for the first uh, time ever on Country Stride, but uh, as ever, a fascinating chat. Absolutely, yes, I'm, I'm totally exhausted. All kinds of interesting ground that we covered from obviously Dorothy, the star of the show today, through nature writing more generally and the, uh, how important it might be at a, a time like this. So, end up with some resonances for those of us who are caught indoors with itchy feet, which uh, I certainly have at the moment. Now, one of the toughest impacts of this coronavirus and the the shutdown uh, here in Cumbria, of course, is that so many of the tourist shops that stock Mark and I's books have closed down. Um, So there has been a a slight impact on the money that sustains Country Stride in the background. So if you want to do anything to support Country Stride and and Mark and myself, who always give our time 
to this for free. The best thing that you can do for Mark, you can buy his Fell Ranger books uh, directly from Cicerone. Is that right, Mark? Absolutely, yes. Go to cicerone.co.uk and they immediately on the site it'll tell you how to order. <laughs> so it's quite useful, but when there are no bookshops, and I really feel for all the bookshops and everybody in the tourism trade who are servicing the walkers, uh, and the fact the walkers can't come, they can't stay, and all that, it's, it's, it's all a, a muddle. Yes, and these are the fabulous new editions, um, which have received fantastic reviews so far. And yeah, a shout-out from me as well to the bookshops of Cumbria, because you couldn't hope for more supportive businesses, could you, Mark? And I mean, I know both you and Myself, we spend a lot of time travelling around the county and popping into these businesses that really have become friends um, over the course of many, many years. And if you want to support some of my books as well, Lake District in 101 Maps and Infographics, the Lake District Quiz Book, and Terry Abraham's debut book, which is available for pre-order at the moment, but you can find them all at inspiredbylakeland.co.uk. Um, and yeah Terry's lovely book of photos uh, coming out fairly soon we usually say what we've got coming up next don't we Mark but we're (laughs) we're playing it one day at a time what we can say is that we have got a range of guests who we know we can get on to Zoom who who will be able to share their knowledge and expertise and love of Cumbria and we will be proceeding uh, for as long as we need to and until we can get our walking boots on again we will say goodbye uh, for now. You will need to go back to uh, increase your Scrabble score. We'd, we'd expect on the on the next podcast to find that you're into the 700s. Okay. Yeah, that'll be, that'll be one day. So good, good luck with that. I got all the triples for a start. <laughs> well, until next time, Mark, and the next Country Stride, see you for now. It was great to be with you, David, however remotely, and I hope we'll be back again soon. <laughs> <laughs>